Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8, and verse 28. Today, we wrap up Romans, chapter 8, one of the best chapters in all the Bible, and one of the best books in all the Bible, in the best book in the whole world, the Bible. As we've jumped back into Romans, Pastor Brad has spent the last two weeks catching us up to where we left off in our sermon series, which was way back on November 9th, which was my wedding anniversary, and also the day on which I preached a sermon entitled, The Best is Yet to Come. And we focused on Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, seeing what God has promised his children. We looked at a rather popular portion of scripture, particularly among Christians in Romans 8 and verse 28, which reads as follows. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, For those who are called according to his purpose. And one thing you may recall that we spent a lot of time on is focusing on uh, defining what good meant. All things work together for good. Well, what exactly did the Lord mean when he inspired Paul to write that text? Now, I'm just curious, just by way of illustration, by show of hands, how many of you would say the Super Bowl worked out for good? Raise them nice and high. How many of you would say the Super Bowl worked out for good? Good. All right. Keep them high. No, no. Keep them up. All right. Everyone else look around. Trust these people like not at all <laughs> under, under any poor judgment, poor discernment. It's, it's not, it's not a good thing. I bring this up to say this. It depends on your perspective, right? For some people, the Super Bowl worked out for good for the rest of us normal people. We would look back at the Super Bowl and say, that was not what I was hoping would happen. This did not work out for good. So it depends on your perspective. It depends on your perspective. Whose good are you talking about? What do you consider good? So just by way of review, we looked at verse 28 where God says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we looked at what God was referring to as good. Now, many times we see God work together things for good in this life, right? I've certainly seen that. I've seen marriages that are going completely down the tubes be saved. I've seen rebellious children come home and walk with the Lord. I've seen cancer healed. I've seen the unemployed given jobs. I've seen churches grow. You have too. The list goes on and on and on. And we do well to credit every good thing as having come from above, right? James 1 and verse 17. Now, verse 28 of chapter 8 in Romans says, We know, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. All things. Now, I've seen marriages saved. I've also seen them go into divorce. I've seen children come to the Lord after years of running from him, and I've also seen them run further and farther than I ever thought they could have just when I thought they were running out of steam. I've seen people beat cancer. I've seen people die from cancer. Once again, you have too. I've seen people have a career and then I've seen them lose in what seems to be a split-second decision up top that required them to eventually work three jobs just to make ends meet. But the text says all things. For all people who love God. But the context of this text falls in a portion of scripture where we're being encouraged to have the long view, right? To not just put our hope in things that are here, but to put our hope in what things that we cannot see. Like look back five verses or four verses to Romans 8 and verse 24, uh, where we read, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Verse 25. But if we hope for what we 
do not see, we wait for it with patience. And as we've been reading through and working through the chapter, of, uh, chapter 8 in the book of Romans, we're told to look for future glory, to look for hope that we haven't seen yet, that we've grown in this life, but the best is yet to come. And the good that God is promising us is that we become more like Jesus Christ, more like the Savior by whom we've been saved. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his Son. Uh, While we might see the good now, we'll definitely see the good later. And while we might see the good in this life, and oftentimes we do, we have testimony services and just your own walk with the Lord, I'm sure you can say, and then God pulled through and then God made a way. And I thought it was going to happen this way, but it ended up happening this way. And then God did this and it worked out better than I thought it ever would. While we might see that good in this life, we have this hope that this life is not all there is. This life is not all there is. If it doesn't go the way we'd hoped or planned or even prayed our hearts out for, take heart in this, take courage in this, that this isn't your final destination. Your ticket is punched to heaven and this world is not your home. And while heaven is the destination, the goal is Christ-likeness and it's as good as done. Look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified predestined us, called us, justified us, and glorified us. And even though the glorification hasn't happened yet, even though that's yet to come, it's written there in the past tense. It's as good as done. We don't have to wonder, all right, I know he's predestined me. I know he's called me. I know he's justified me, but oh, I hope he'll glorify me. Paul is saying, take heart. It's as good as done. As good as done. And that brings us to our text today, Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. So I'm going to read that now through the end of the chapter. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. This is what the Word of God says to us today. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake... We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you uh, thankful for your word. Thankful for the word made flesh who dwelt among us, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who would live his life among us perfectly and then die a sinner's death, even though he had no sin within himself, but absorb the wrath that was coming towards sinners like me, and like my friends here, and then rise from the grave so that we might have eternal life with him. And now, Lord, our Savior sits at your right hand, 
interceding for us. And for all of this, uh, we come before you with humble words of praise, just wanting to say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. And Lord, now we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of your holy word. Father, I pray that you would give me the ability, the unique ability to rightly divide your word of truth and that, Lord, we would be uh, enabled to understand it, uh, to apply it, and to be changed to be more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. What we're looking at today, what I just finished reading, is really the, the grand finale to Paul's treatment of a very important topic that we love to talk about at Grace Fellowship Church. A big fancy word called sanctification. Sanctification. Now, there's many different types of sanctification. There's uh, positional sanctification, okay? Whereas in an instant, your position before the Lord can be changed. If you believe the gospel, you say, what is the gospel? The good news that Jesus Christ would humble himself to come down from heaven through the womb of a virgin, live a perfect life, and yet die a death of a sinner on the cross Like you and like me. See, he died as if he was a sinner, like you and like me. He died as if he was perhaps even a worse sinner. He died as if he was a a, a common criminal who would be worthy of the death penalty. And he died on that cross whereby he absorbed the wrath of God that would have been headed towards sinners like you and me and died and was buried. And God from heaven, God the Father, looks down upon the Son and was satisfied was satisfied with the price that Jesus Christ paid for sinners and said, I'll take it. That pay, that's paid in full. Paid in full for all of God's redeemed. But then the good news is that our Savior doesn't have a grave we can visit because he rose from the dead, which we celebrate. And then rose, literally rose, like floated into the air, went into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, which we'll talk about a little more later. That's the good news of the gospel. And friend... If you believe that good news, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved today, now, right now, like as I snap my fingers. If you are not a believer, if you are lost, if you are hell-bound and hell-deserving, you can be saved even now. That's positional sanctification. You can be set apart positionally before the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another type of sanctification that we like to talk about, and that's ultimate sanctification, right? We will ultimately be sanctified, ultimately be separated from this world, ultimately be perfected in Jesus Christ and be like him. But there's a lot of time, at least as we would see, between that positional and that ultimate, and we have the sanctification that we call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification, where God works in us and through us to become more like Jesus Christ. And in our text today, that is what we are coming to the end of speaking about, right? That's what Paul was talking about in the text previously that we looked way back in November. Uh, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We have been predestined to have our lives, the way we act, think, interpret life, view the world, respond to things, to have that change to be more like Jesus Christ. And that will ultimately happen in heaven, but it will progressively happen now. The good that we're promised is becoming more like Jesus. More than just being with Jesus, which will happen one day, uh, we will one day be like Jesus. And that's great, great news. So in light of this great verse, Paul asks a series of questions in our text today, verses 31 through 39. 
Now, some say Paul is asking rhetorical questions in order to highlight or summarize all that he said throughout chapter 8. Some even say he's highlighting and summarizing all he said going way back to chapter 5. And some others say that he's anticipating questions that his readers would have about the security of their standing in Christ and the goal of becoming like him. And all of those positions hold some water. But regardless of what the reasoning is, you'll notice Paul asking questions to highlight what may appear to be what I'll call today as security threats. Security threats to our salvation. Threats that we may interpret as this, could, this, this might undo it. Uh, this, this is really bad. This, now, this thing right here could be a threat to my security in the Lord. And we've, I've uh, categorized them really in three categories. People, prince of darkness, and predicaments. People, prince of darkness, and predicaments, as we look through the text, ultimately to come to a conclusion that we have an unshakable promise in who we are in Christ. Romans 8 and verse 31, we read this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you have noticed this. We are a minority. We are a minority. So I don't really feel like a minority. That's because you hang out with a lot of Christians. If you don't feel like a minority, probably you hang out with a lot of Christians running Christian circles. But this is a mathematical statistical fact. If you add up the Christians versus the non-Christians, we are a minority. Well, it won't always be that way. Yeah, it will. On this side of heaven, it will always be that way. In heaven, take heart. We'll be like a supermajority. But but now, living this life, minority, minority. You can sign as many petitions as you want, boycott whatever you want. You will always be a minority. So that's just what God has signed you up to be if you follow Christ. And, and God's not upset about that, right? He's not concerned. Oh, my numbers. He's not looking for approval ratings. He's not, he's not concerned about those things because this life is not all there is. But suffice it to say... We are a minority. Jesus doesn't promise worldly popularity or majority status in, world, in this world. In fact, if you read the Gospels carefully and you look at what Jesus talks about, what it means to be a disciple, he talks about things about like dying to self, taking up your cross as following him. He doesn't say follow this because this will make your life better now. It's harder now, but we know it's better later. And we know we get to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 31, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I don't know your life. I don't know what you're dealing with now. But if I look at you and I say, hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? I bet you some of you would look at me and say, would you like an alphabetical list? Because there are plenty of people in my life who appear to be uh, uh, against me. Uh, maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe your hand goes up and you say, I have an answer. You want to know who can be against me? I got, I got an answer. You got some time? I got an answer. If God is for me, who can be against me? Uh, uh, it, maybe, it's, maybe it's my husband okay, or my kids. I'm the only Christian in my home. I strive to live a life that is pleasing to God and I'm mocked for it. I'm ridiculed for it. Hey, Paul, who can be against us? I'll tell you, my, my family, uh, my friends, I come from a background that says I have to do certain things in order to stay in a right standing with God. I have to keep certain rituals. I have to go to mass on certain days. I have to pray specific prayers. And there are some who think that I've gone apostate since I've come to Jesus, when in reality, quite the opposite is true. But the bottom line is they're against me. They're saying my salvation is illegitimate, that I've gone the wrong way, that I've gone way left and way south fast. And you know what? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you know who can be against me? Me. 
me? What if I'm my, I could be my own worst enemy? I mean, I'd be, I may be riding on the peace train now, but, but surely I have enough sin within me to derail this thing. I mean, I know how I think. I know how I respond. What if I mess up? What if I am my own worst enemy? Who can be against us? What if we can be against us? But look again at verse 31. Look carefully at verse 31. The question isn't solely who can be against us. The question is, if God is for us, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that if in the Greek isn't simply a possibility. It's a, it's a, it's a fulfilled conclusion, a fulfilled condition. So, it's, you know, it's like, well, if it's so cold outside, what should I wear? Well, we're, we're saying it is cold outside, so since it's cold outside, I should bundle up, right? If God is for us, it's, 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 it's really since God is for us or because God is for us, who can be against us? The emphasis, friends, isn't on the list of who is against us. That list is long and maybe growing longer. The question is this, since God is for us, is there anyone that can be against us that will really derail us? See, God is for us. Do you know that? God is for us. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been saved, born from above, if you have a love for Christ, he is for you. That'll radically change your life. That will radically change your life. Realizing that God is for you, that will radically change the way you pray. That will radically change the way you commune with God, the way you interpret scripture. If you realize that God is for his children and he's not going to start something for his children that he's not going to end. He is for us. He's not wondering if we'll make it to the end. He's not hoping we'll make it to the end to become like Christ. Do you realize God's never wondered or hoped for anything? He's never, ah, oh, how's this going to turn out? I really hope it turns, I mean, you know, what's he going to say? Like, I mean, who's going to pray to himself that it works out? He, he doesn't wonder. He doesn't hope. He ensures. He's the sovereign ruler of all the universe, and he loves me, and he's for me. And he's ultimately for his glory. And what would glorify himself more than a wretch like me becoming like his son, Jesus Christ? God is for us. Well, we read in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, here's the question. Would God sacrifice his one and only son just to give us like a, a shot at salvation, just to give us a, a shot at eternal life? Sacrifice his son and roll the dice and hope it works out. See, that's the point of the text, right? It's kind of an argument from the greater to the lesser. He gave up his son, his one and only son. It would stand to reason, therefore, that everything we need beyond that would be small change. And it's really not hard for God. He who, did not, he who gave up his own son, he didn't spare him. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also finish the job? How would he start that job? Start salvation, change us positionally, but not ultimately change us to the very end. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How is he not going to along with us also freely give us all things? 
And it's not only here. The Bible is chock full of verses reminding us that we need not fear what others can do for us. First John 4 and verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he is in you is what? Greater than he who is in the world. It's not just a New Testament thing. Numbers 14 and verse 9. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. For they are, I love that, for they are bread to us. They are bread to us. Do you have someone say like, oh yeah, you're, you're, yeah, I've seen it on TV and stuff. I don't know, maybe you've said this to people. You know, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. Try next time going up to somebody. You know what? You're bread to me. Probably won't translate. But, but, but the, the point of the Old Testament text is they're like, they're, 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 they're substance to be consumed. God's given them to us so that we can just consume them. That we'll be strengthened by them. They're bread to us. Their protection, verse 9, Numbers 14, is, from, is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, there's a way you can answer that question. What can man do to me? I mean, they can, he can hurt me and poke me and, 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 and irritate me and make fun of me and persecute me and kill me. There's answers to that question. But the point is, the Lord is on my side. He is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? All of those things will not amount to ultimate success and victory for the Lord's enemies. We don't fear people. Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, Satan is called the what? The accuser of our brothers, the accuser of the brethren. But our debt has been paid in full and our advocate is Jesus Christ who intercedes for us. Now, you may recall that just before Jesus went to the cross, he told Peter that he would what? Deny him three times. To which Peter replied and said, you've got the wrong guy, which is never a good response to Jesus. Say, I think you might be off. That will never bode well for you. But he responds and says, Jesus, you're wrong. It's not me. And Jesus just says, it's going to happen. But guess what? Satan has also asked to what? To sift you as wheat. He wants to rock your world. He wants to come in and just, just sift you, just like you, would, just, just like you would picture that, if you could picture the sifting of wheat, just coming in, just throwing up every single detail in your life. Satan has asked to sift you as weak. Some translations say Satan has demanded, demanded, like, like Satan's like being held back. Let me at him. Just, just let me at him. One shot. Give me one shot. And Jesus goes on to say that he has what? Prayed for him that his faith wouldn't fail. And says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Does Jesus sound intimidated or concerned about Satan's accusation against Peter? He's like, listen, this is what's going to happen. You're going to deny me three times. No, I won't. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm the son of God. You're going to deny me three times. Okay. But, and Satan is also asked to do much worse. But don't worry. I've prayed for you. And not if, but when you have returned, right? Not if, when you have returned, Peter. Strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus had confidence in, in the genuine, true faith of, uh, of Peter in Jesus Christ. That not only he would return, but would return in such a way that he'd be strong enough to strengthen his brothers. 
And if you read through on the book of Acts, you know that Jesus used, that God used Paul, uh, hello, God used Peter to do great and mighty things in establishing his church. Now, there may be no greater example in scripture of Satan showing himself as the accuser than the story of Job. The story of Job. Satan accuses Job before God. And we're not looking at that text today because it's, we don't have time to get into it. But if you haven't read the, the full book of Job, the full book, I would encourage you to do so. See, Satan accuses Job before God and basically says, he doesn't, really, he doesn't really love you. He only loves you because you bless him. If you take away his stuff, take away his health, he will curse you to your, do you remember? To your face. He'll look right at you and just, he'll just, he will curse you to your face. He doesn't really love you. You know what God's response is? Game on. Bring it. And God allows Job to be tried and go through some very, very, very hard trials. But only through the sovereign hand of God who was constantly limiting what Satan could do. And this is, I used to say this when we, I used to teach this in youth ministry. I used to say, when you look at Job, look at the beginning of Job. Let me ask you this question. Who poked who? Right? Who started that conversation? God looks at Satan and says, hey, uh, what have you been up to? From where have you come? How many of you feel like God probably knew what Satan had been up to? I'm pretty sure he did. Hey, Satan. He said, ah, ah, what? I'm going to and from the earth. Hey, did you see my servant Job? How awesome he is, how much he loves me. See him, you see him, see him, you see him, you see him, see him, he loves me, he loves me. Uh, No, he doesn't. And it starts this whole thing. Why? So that God could glorify himself through the genuine faith in Job. And it wasn't all, if you read through the book, it wasn't always just just bells and whistles. It wasn't always Job just saying, I'm just keeping my, my trust in the Lord and it's always easy. It's not easy, it's hard. It's very, very, very hard. But God let Satan test Job because he knew Job would persevere. And he knew that because he knew his faith was genuine. We say along with the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 John 2, 1. My li- I love this. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Right? It's not just, hey, listen, hey, kids, pay attention. I'm writing these things so you don't sin. So don't. He then comes back to say, listen, the goal here would be to not sin. That would be the win. But if you do sin, and I've never looked at the Greek in there. I feel like it maybe should be when you do sin. But if you do sin, the good news is you have an advocate. Jesus Christ who's standing before the Lord saying, he's with me, he's with me, she's with me, she's with me. That's one of ours, she's with me. That's one of ours, she's with me. Isaiah 50 and verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. So Job proves that his faith is genuine, right? God is glorified. Does Job get back the children that died?
Did all things work together for good for Job who loved God? If you interpret that verse as a promise for the best life being now, you will be let down. But if you look at the context and realize that as a result of all that Job went through, he said, I know that what? My Redeemer lives. And he became more like his Redeemer, more acquainted with his Redeemer, more in love with his Savior, more in love with his God as a result. When I look to you and I say, did all things work together for good? You look back and you would say, yes, they did. God kept his promise. It was so hard. It was so hard. Probably was hard for Job, but for many, 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 many years. But God kept his promise. It worked out for good because God defines good as you becoming more like him. You becoming more like him. That's why we read in Romans 8, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here's what came to my mind as I was preparing this sermon, just thinking about this text and meditating on it. Do you ever have a rough day Yes. Uh, did you ever have a, a, rough, a rough season in life? And, and just the way you're thinking through things, the way you're, whether it's a day, a week, a month, a year, whatever. And you know you love the Lord, but you have a rough season in life and you're not happy with the way you've been handling things. And you think to yourself, real Christians don't handle life this way. You ever go around your small group, think about the godly people that you know in your small group? I bet Sally never thinks the way I think. Joe seems like a really godly guy. There's, there's no way. You start comparing yourself to other people. Show of hands, you've ever done that. Satan's the accuser of the brethren. You're not the real thing. Christians don't do that. Yeah, I know you repented, but just admit it. You still feel guilty. Why would you feel guilty if Jesus Christ died for your sins? If Jesus Christ died for your sins, you shouldn't feel guilty. Maybe you feel guilty because he didn't die for your sins. Maybe you're not one of his. Maybe you're not really saved. Maybe it's all an emotional facade. Who is to condemn? Paul asks in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Paul's bringing it back, saying, hey, remember how I started this chapter, verse 1? I know that was 33 verses ago. Who is to, remember, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who's going to condemn you? What are these accusations? He's basically saying, look at the accusations. Look at the overwhelming weight of evidence in God's love for his children. Look at the accusation. Then look at the fact that Jesus Christ died. Then look at the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Then look at the fact that Jesus Christ is interceding on behalf of us right now. Who is to condemn? It's Christ. You're going up against Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
those accusations, those questions that we ask ourselves might be from our own sinful nature. It might be just a little, a little whisper. Just a little whisper of an accusation. Little whisper. Do you think any other Christians think what you just thought? I'm just asking. I didn't, well, no, I'm not saying anything. I just asked a question. Those are some of the worst accusations that have ever happened. Do you think really Christians would feel that way about someone? He's your brother in Christ. you think people would feel that way? think other Christians feel, hey, let's listen to some godly Christians. You think they, I'm just, just asking. You, you, I got to go. You figure it out. Accusations. But we come back to the truth of Scripture. Who is to condemn? Paul covers, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can accuse us? We cover people. We cover the prince of darkness. But what about predicaments that we look at in verse 35? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37 says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. You might say, what about people who are against me? People who say, you know, this isn't real. This isn't legit. What about just the accusations of the evil one? What about my own sinful nature that I can, I can throw this thing off? Or the things that I think, this isn't real, this isn't real, you're a fake, this is not true. Paul says, who is it condemned? Christ Jesus who died. But what about predicaments in this life? And the predicaments that he lists here, they're, they're pretty intense. They're pretty intense. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? What about these things? What if these things, can they separate us from the love of Christ? In verse 37, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. The, the Greek term translated there as more than conquerors literally means super conquerors. Uh, hyper conquerors, uh, over conquerors. In other words, we have conquered with success to spare. Uh, we've conquered, we can conquer these things in this life, and then we still have success to spare. So, uh, this Wednesday, Pitchers and Catchers Report, February 18th. It's a glorious day. I'm sure you're as excited as I am. Um, let me take you back to June 26, 2002, where a baseball player by the name of Mo Vaughn. Uh, was on the infamous New York Mets, okay? And this was the last two years of his career, and Mo had two settings, on and off. What I mean by that is this. He either knocked the ball out of the city or he grounded out to first because he was big as a house and he could hardly run, and it was so, we, we, we just had a knack for picking up people like big names as they were on their way out because that's what we, yay Mets, that's just what we did. So we picked him up, and he would hit this ball, and if it was fielded by anyone, anyone, he was out at first. He was out at first. But if he didn't, if it wasn't fielded, he knocked it like into New Jersey. Like it, it was, so there's no middle ground, no middle ground. Well, June 26, 2002, Mo Vaughn hits a home run that ends up hitting about three quarters of the way up the scoreboard. If you think about that, that's high. I mean, just think about that at any baseball stadium. That's high. For it to be that high at that point, you'd think it would just be coming down. That was high. It was estimated to have traveled 505 feet. Now, Old Shea Stadium, the right center field wall, was 338 feet. That ball had more than enough to accomplish what it needed to do. 
The, the power that was within that kit had way more than enough to get out of that park. Way more than enough. In fact, it would have still been traveling had that scoreboard not been there. It had way more power than was needed to accomplish what it did. It more than accomplished. It more than conquered. It would have been hit way outside of the ballpark. Now, the illustration breaks down because we lost 6-3. to three. But that's not the point. The point is the hit, the hit itself, had more power than it was needed to accomplish for what it did. It had more power than was needed to accomplish the goal. And that's what Paul is saying. We are not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. We're not, we've not been given strength and security just so that we can, just so we can eke this way through life just so we could survive we're going to get into heaven just by the we're just going to like finally get up there just by the skin of our teeth we're not just going to conquer we're going to more than conquer over these things even if these things mean the end of our earthly life because elsewhere in scripture we're told to live as christ and to die is gain If God is for me, who can be against me? God hasn't given us just enough to get by. We read this elsewhere, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You've got it. Christ is sufficient. His word is sufficient. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us a shot at Christ. No, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me, Jesus says, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The tribulations, the predicaments, the things that you face in this life, they're hard. The things that I face in this life are hard. The trials and the tribulations that we go through in this life are hard. And I know they could be harder, but that doesn't minimize that what you're going through right now is hard. But take heart that God has given us all that we need to conquer, to more than conquer, with strength and success to spare want to call our worship team to the stage as we take a look at this last and final point. We've looked at the fact that people can do nothing to derail our faith. They're not a real security threat. That even the, the prince of darkness grim, we what? We tremble not for him. Because God is good. Because his strength is, his strength is stronger. His word is truer. We've looked at the predicaments in this life. That they can't throw us off. And then Paul wraps things up in verse 38 and 39 with a clear promise. Look at verse 38. For I am sure. Paul's not saying he hopes. Paul's not saying I'm, 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 I'm really banking on this, but I'm not too. He says, I am sure, verse 38, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can take it with you to the bank. Paul is sure. We are more than conquerors. God didn't save you to cope. He saved you to conquer. More than conquer. And he's not calling you to some unattainable goal. God's commandments, particularly for his children, God's commandments assume God's enablement. 
He's not messing with you. He's given you more than what you need to conquer. More than what you need to make it to the end. More than what you need to become like Christ. Lastly, as we close, I just want you to look back at verse 31. We're going to look at all these questions. And look at where the answer lies. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 31. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Question about my ability to make it. God tells me to look what? Up to him. 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is who? God who justifies. 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, I look at God. I look at God. I look at God. I don't look back at me. 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then finally wraps it up in verse 39 saying that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, inward I look. Outward I look. No, what? What did we sing? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Every question asked there answered in God, not in me. In what God has done, not in what I need to do. What about you? There's questions in your outline that I would encourage you to um, consider on your own, in your small group, whatever. What, what is the greatest security threat to you and your salvation? Where do you find yourself being fearful? We're told we shouldn't be fearful. Yeah, I know. Where are you fearful? Is it, is it people? Is it, is it the, the, the prince of... Is it accusations? Is it predicaments, life circumstances? And what does this mean for what we're calling us to consider this year? And in the years to come, about having courage uh, to take a stand. What does God's promise that you are more than conquerors in Christ, what does that do for the courage that you need, for the confidence that you need to speak, for the, the, the heart of the sacrificial heart that God is calling us to have in response to His great, great, great love? And think about these things and promise to take, by God's grace, take one step. Take one step. I'm going to do nine things. Look at me. No, you're not. No, you're not. You don't know me. Yeah, you're not. You're not. I'm not. You're not. I'm going to do nine things. That, no. What's one step? What one step in light of these great truths? What is one step you'll take this week to demonstrate courage, to demonstrate confidence, to demonstrate a, a, a sacrificial heart in light of not your get up and go, not your stick but in light of what God has promised us in being more than conquerors because of him who loved us. Think about that. Let's pray about that. Let's go boldly with that in our hearts, in our minds, as we seek to take steps of faith, steps of faith to live out 
the calling that God has placed on our lives to be pleasing to him and to become more like him, knowing that he will finish what he started in his children. Father in heaven, we come before you uh, excited to be part of your family. Uh, Lord, we uh, can be uh, fearful, we can be anxious, and we realize those are uh, high sins, knowing that you are sovereign and that you are for us. Lord, when we're fearful and anxious, it is surely not because you have fallen short in telling us not to be. Lord, it's surely not because you have spared some ink in your scriptures and telling us that we need to have courage and have confidence in you. It's because we look the wrong way. We look at ourselves. We look around at our circumstances. Lord, forgive us. Grant us repentance. Lord, give us courage. Give us confidence, Lord. Show us where you would be calling us to sacrifice for your name's sake. And Lord, may it all be rooted, not in ourselves, not in our own emotions, not in our, our, our own hyped up feelings about life and this day and all that it has. But Lord, because of the promise that you give us in your great word, that nothing, nothing is able to separate us from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.